Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. Before I started medical school, I thought the operating room would be incredibly quiet, like the inside of a church. But in actual fact, the operating room can be an incredibly noisy environment. Not bad in chair, I don't think. Dr. Sugin McDonnell is an anesthetist specializing in periop medicine at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. She's particularly interested in the concept of noise in the operating room and how that can affect decision-making and focus in the OR. We were privileged to hear about her research around noise in the OR and her thoughts about how we can improve the OR environment and communication across the drapes. Dr. McDonnell, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel today. It's truly an honor to have you on the show and uh, taking time out of your busy schedule. Could we just start by uh, asking you a little to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you grew up and where, where you did your training? Well, thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, I had an interesting kind of course or path to medicine. I actually, I'm from Nanaimo, BC, and that's on Vancouver Island. <clears throat> and, um, <clears throat> sorry. And, um, you know, I actually was a professional ballet dancer and, and did that for a few years and then recognized that uh, it financially wasn't sustainable and it was, um, the future was pretty unknown. And so I decided to go to nursing school and I nursed for two years before going to medical school at UBC. And after my medical school, I went and did residency or anesthesia residency at UBC. And then post-residency, I did a fellowship in perioperative medicine in Hamilton at McMaster University, uh, critical care ultrasound certification, and also did my master's in perioperative medicine through the University College of London. So um, I, I think that probably all of my experiences uh, prior to residency ultimately led me to the current path that I have now. Yeah, it's a really neat path that, that you know, the fact that you're a professional ballet dancer and, and have all, had all these different experiences is so neat. What drew you to periop medicine and why did you kind of get interested in that? You know, to be honest with you, it was a little bit of an accident. Um, and I think a lot of us end up doing this, you know, um, in hindsight, probably my experience nursing on a general surgery floor um, allowed me to uh, gain insight as to the patient experience. And I think, you know, when I was finished my residency, um, the, you know, unexpected path was basically, you know, as I was looking for, um, you know, my ideal position, my ideal job, you know, you start looking into fellowships, fellowships. And at that time, uh, perioperative medicine was well established internationally. But in fact, in Canada, it had just started emerging as a subspecialty in anesthesia. And, you know, in starting to think about marketing myself for my dream job, which I ultimately got, um, I looked at all my options and kind of fell upon perioperative medicine and then um, so, sort of realized, you know, how important it is for patient safety and experience. Um, and then uh, fell in love, essentially, and uh, 
went forward with it through multiple routes to gain expertise. And I think now that um, fellowship and subspecialty is much more established. It's established nationally and also locally uh, at two major academic centers. It's now part of our residency program. But I think I, I caught it at its infancy in anesthesia and uh, was lucky to do so. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, subspecialty. And as you know, it's exploding across all specialties of medicine, whether that is internal medicine, surgery, and of course, anesthesia. So it's uh, lots of room for growth, for sure. You know, we, we were hoping to talk to you today a little bit about uh, noise, ambient noise, per se, in the operating theater. And we, we realized that you have a, quite a neat and special interest in that, in that topic. How did you get interested in that particular domain? And, uh, and what was the genesis of it? You know, um, I think I think the experience of noise in the operating room is partially related to culture and expectations um, of those who are working in the operating room. And I think, you know, ultimately, I decided to um, investigate and do a little bit more um, information gathering before I initiated this QI project. Um, based on a conversation I had with uh, an anesthesia resident who was from out of province who noted how noisy it was on induction at St. Paul's Hospital. And I remember having a conversation with her and, you know, asking about, you know, her perception and why she thought it was so noisy. And she told me, you know, at the hospital that she was training, it was expected that all non-involved, so surgical team, surgical assists, and nurses, porters, et cetera, had to leave the room for induction. And that it was very, um, very much expected that that noise would be reduced during the time of induction. So that got me started on, you know, looking at our culture, uh, which is very good at St. Paul's Hospital, um, but specifically around the noise experience and started to really look into the research and noted that there was really a, a lack of information about noise in the operating room. And I think it's starting to emerge now. Um, but I think part of the reason why there wasn't a lot of literature is that noise has changed. It's changed in the hospital uh, since the 1960s. We've, you know, researchers have noted a general increase in noise and that's partially due to monitors and equipment. And I think that as the number of personnel in the operating room increases, um, probably people have started to pay attention because prior to this, you know, noise was steadily increasing and now it's getting to a, a level in which it's starting to potentially impact healthcare workers who are working regularly in the operating room. So that ultimately led me to development of this project. Um, and I decided to do my master's thesis on it. It's so fascinating because it's something that we all deal with on a daily basis, but uh, don't really think about and haven't really thought about what an impact it has. Um, so I actually wanted to just dive specifically into one of the papers that you just got recently accepted. This was a, a paper where you had actually uh, evaluated noise levels in the OR and specifically saw the changes in the levels of noise pre and post intervention uh, from a quality improvement type project. Could you walk us through this paper and uh, tell us sort of what you looked at and uh, what you found? Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, just 
just to, um, because I have multiple kind of projects going on, I just want to clarify this particular project I'm talking about is uh, looking at noise on induction. And in fact, um, hopefully I'll be publishing the noise on extubation. Uh, it's not for the duration of uh, the surgery. Um, so for this, you know, noise on induction study, essentially there are three main parts, pre-intervention, intervention and post-intervention. And for the first and last part, so those are the interventions, it was subdivided into two separate parts. So it's a little bit confusing, but the, the pre-intervention is same as the post-intervention. So I'll just talk about the pre-intervention just to make sure that that's fairly clear for those listening. The pre-intervention was divided into the anesthesia experience and the patient experience. So from the anesthesia experience standpoint, what was done was uh, patients were evaluated whether or not they could be included or excluded. So exclusion would include significant hearing impairment, cognitive impairment, and also, uh, you know, any um, regional techniques, so solely a spinal or a block. But if you had a general anesthetic and undergoing non-cardiac surgery, you could be included. And the anesthesiologist would proceed as she or he would normally do and evaluated and measured noise from essentially the patient entering the room to airway being placed. So that's either an LMA or an endotracheal tube. And this was uh, measured via a decibel meter. We tried multiple different decibel meters, but we ended up with an app uh, that was validated on an iPhone. And after the induction, uh, when it was safe and appropriate to do so, the anesthesiologist filled out a survey. And the survey essentially looked at whether or not she or he uh, thought that the patient had a significant anxiety disorder, whether or not midazolam was used, and then looked at the experience of noise from um, their standpoint. So uh, specifically looking at, was there care-related noise? Was there non-care or patient-related noise? So that's, for example, conversations um, about uh, another patient, for example. Um, and, uh, and then the overall impression. So was the anesthesiologist bothered by the noise? Was the noise distracting? Uh, and does, does the, or was the noise uh, potentially reducible from their point? And, uh, and so that was completed. And, and then on a separate kind of uh, path was a patient survey. So the patient survey uh, looked at basically their satisfaction from an induction standpoint. So looked at things like um, fear, uh, did noise bother them? Um, did they have an overall positive experience? And this would, was administered either um, on post-up day zero or post-up day one. We did have to evaluate whether or not patients were able to, um, were able to actually answer that questionnaire, which is sometimes tricky in the post-operative period. And, and, and then, um, and then basically that was repeated in the post intervention phase. So we had about a hundred patients and a hundred anesthesiologists in the pre-intervention phase and the same for the post intervention phase. And the intervention itself was, uh, essentially education around the impact of noise in the operating room and ways to reduce it. So uh, that was done via education to the surgeons, anesthesiologists, um, the nurses, and the other operating 
operating room staff in, you know, that work with us. So porters, for example, cleaners, et cetera. And, you know, there were discussions specifically about how you could reduce noise. So from an anesthesia standpoint, I can check my machine when the patient isn't in the room, uh, turn off my suction if it's not required for a rapid sequence induction and decrease alarm volume, making sure that I can still hear it and then it's still able to overcome the ambient noise. And from a surgical standpoint, it was discussed uh, ways to reduce the noise. And the main way to reduce noise for induction was actually to wait outside because, you know, um, if you're standing in an operating room and it looks like nothing's happening, but there are things happening, you know, it, it's, it's hard not to engage in conversations and try and be efficient with your management of the day. Um, so waiting outside, it has a big impact on noise on induction, uh, making sure that one answers uh, phone calls or pages outside of the room. And, um, and then from a nursing standpoint, uh, we, we implemented the change that the OR table and the equipment would be set up prior to the operating, uh, prior to the patient coming into the operating room. Um, and and we noticed that uh, with all this kind of education, there was a decrease in noise uh, in the post-intervention phase. I hope that explains it. I know it's a bit confusing. No, I think that's a, a very good explanation of, uh, of your paper and it makes it very clear. Just, just to give us a sense of like what these numbers mean, because I think that the, the, the hard part for the reader maybe is understanding what these noise levels really are. So can you, can you kind of break it down in terms of things that we would understand, like in the pre-intervention phase and post-intervention phase for your average noise levels, what, what does that really represent? Like the, the average numbers that you have here on your graphs, what, what does that actually translate out to being in terms of like uh, noise levels? Yeah, I mean, noise is a result of air pressure fluctuations a source creates and is expressed in a logarithmic scale um, called a decibel. And this was this scale was created to best capture the human ear frequency due to the, you know, the large range that we can hear. So we can hear from zero to 130 decibels. And um, we tend to hear higher frequency noise better than lower frequency noise. So sometimes what you'll see is when you see the decibel, you'll see, um, you know, um, A after it. And that is basically uh, was created to de-emphasize the low frequency sound. So basically to capture our hearing um, that is seen by the ear, essentially. And you know, um, what is important to recognize is by decreasing uh, three decibels, you're having the sound intensity. So, you know, appropriately, people are looking at these numbers and saying, well, what exactly does that mean? So, uh, for example, um, when we look at uh, noise levels and the mean noise levels, um, pre-intervention, the mean noise level was about 66. Um, and post-intervention, that was 63.5. So to put it in kind of a real life situation, um, the difference in noise um, was uh, essentially if you were standing by a highway, um, and so that would be a mean of 66. So hearing those, those cars whip by you, um, versus um, standing by an arterial road. So um, I would imagine that to be similar to Broad Street. So that is the difference in noise experience um, 
you know, a, another uh, way to think of it is essentially if, you know, you were comparing um, standing about two meters away from uh, two people having a normal conversation, so that would be quieter than, um, for example, um, standing uh, by a car that's going at 60 kilometers per hour past you. So, you know, um, the noise difference, although it's only three decibels and, and sounds pretty small, is pretty significant when you apply it to regular life. Life. Yeah, that's a huge difference when you when you put it in, the, in that, those terms. It's a huge difference in noise levels. I think one, one of the interesting things I found from your paper was like the, the patients didn't seem from their satisfaction levels didn't seem like they were particularly changed in terms of their satisfaction levels from by the, the intervention pre and post. And, and you mentioned in the paper that, you know, that uh, there isn't really a noise related patient satisfaction score that's been validated. Can you comment a little bit about that? Like, do, do you think that it was just hard to capture the patient satisfaction changes by noise levels? Uh, or do you think that patients would just had so many other things going on that the noise levels didn't really, really uh, factor in? Yeah, no, it's interesting because that finding is not in keeping with um, a previous study in 2000 that looked at patient experience and noted a significant negative impact of noise on their experience. So I think, you know, you, you've highlighted what we discussed, you know, this questionnaire that we developed was based on um, previous questionnaires on patient experience, but it's not a validated questionnaire for patient experience specifically around noise. And I do think that patients in general um, were quite happy uh, with their experience. I mean, I think we simply didn't have enough patients, to be honest with you, uh, to actually um, to actually understand their patient experience. But, you know, when in looking at the actual um, patients uh, based on subspecialty, we had a significant or a majority representation of general surgery patients. And I would have to say from an anesthesiologist standpoint, in general, the general surgery patients do tend to have a lot more of the preoperative education and, um, and discussions, um, mostly because a lot of them enter the ERAS protocol. And at, at our hospital, as you know, uh, there is involvement of um, not only the surgeons, but the anesthesiologists, the pre-admission nurse, the ERAS nurse, the stoma nurse, potentially. And you can see by having all those uh, personnel involved, there's the opportunity to have discussions and expectation management uh, of what this you know, experience of going to the operating room and post-operative will look like. And I think that is probably the most important thing when we talk about patient experience. It's not the the actual noise experience, it's the expectation and understanding that when you come to the operating room, there's going to be multiple people, lots of noises, lots of alarms, etc. And, and with that knowledge, I think patients generally um, are satisfied. Uh, that being said, clearly, um, you know, it indicates that we're doing something right, that patients aren't bothered by noise. And, and so I think our job really is to find out, you know, uh, well, first of all, repeat this, um, hopefully in, in a manner that may be able to actually detect true differences or understanding or experience. Um, and if noise, in fact, isn't that significant of an issue from a patient perspective, uh, looking at what negatively impacts the, that induction uh, period from a patient perspective, and that's work that should be done, uh, hopefully in the future. 
Yeah, it's super interesting. Like it, you almost think that maybe when when patients come to the OR, they should almost get a preview or a taste of like the entire sensory package that they're going to experience. And that's part of like our preoperative assessment and, and evaluation that we should be really kind of preparing people for the OR. I'm curious if there were anything, if there's anything in particular that stood out, out to you as main co- contributors to noise levels. And, and you did mention, you know, the, the surgical team talking, was that the main thing that was driving uh, noise levels, or was there anything else that stood out to you as being a really noisy thing in the OR? You know, when we look at ambient noise, and you know, we spoke earlier about the general increase in noise um, over the past, you know, sixty years, seventy years. Uh, you know, there are some uh, sources of noise that simply are not modifiable. So, you know, our cardiac monitors, for example, are at fifty to fifty-five decibels. Um, the vacuum aspiration systems are, you know, measure about 50 to 60 decibels, uh, ventilation fans, 60 to 65 decibels, and surgical drills are about 75 decibels, and that's higher in the neurosurgical and ENT group. So, you know, um, I think the reality is that uh, what we notice uh, during um, the post-intervention anesthesia anesthesiologist uh, survey is that the experience of noise and the absolute noise reduction occurred. And um, when we looked at the surveys, a a major change was essentially that non-patient care um, conversations or discussions. So, you know, and that brings in that concept of the sterile cockpit, which is you know, this uh, borrowed from the aviation industry, which anesthesia tends to do a lot of. Um, but it, you know, it really discusses that that concept that uh, it's not completely silent, um, but it, there's only absolutely necessary uh, conversations around um, for, well, what I can imagine, you know, uh, takeoff and landing. Um, you know, it should really be restricted to essential activities. So, I, you know, I do think that uh, part of our intervention was asking the surgical team to leave. It was asking the the nurses to set up prior to the patient coming into the room. And I don't think it's one thing in particular. I think it's all of those things. And and I'm not saying that, you know, the surgeons are the only person, people contributing to, you know, those non-patient care related conversations. That happens with anesthesiologists. That happens you know, um, while we're teaching um, medical students and residents, et cetera, it happens amongst the nurses. I think we all contribute to noise levels. You know, I'm curious now that you've done all this research, what do you think uh, we should be doing going forward? Particularly, I'm thinking about noise monitors. Do you think, uh, like I've heard that in some places, particularly in pediatric hospitals, they actually have noise monitors in the OR. Do you think that's something we should be doing? If the noise monitor actually helps to decrease the noise um, on induction and extubation, um, then absolutely we should consider it. I, I, my caution is that it's it's another monitor. And what I think is that we could probably do some interventions um, that were discussed, you know, in that intervention phase that are pretty easy to implement to help reduce the noise on induction. Now, the noise during the surgery um, and at excavation is a different story. But, you know, certainly for inductions, simply asking those who aren't involved with actual induction to leave the room is is a reasonable option. I think that probably would be your um you know, biggest um, reduction in noise. It's just getting the personnel that are not required to leave the room. I'm not sure that we need a monitor. Um, 
I, like I said, I think that um, if if we can start to think about the the experience of noise and, and look at it from a culture standpoint, it's probably best that we just start to implement some of the changes that were suggested um, in in the paper, which include you know uh, that you know checking your alarms, et cetera, and setting up equipment before the patient comes into the room. Now that being said. Um, uh, it's unpublished, so I can't comment on it too much. But you know, uh, we did gather um, information about noise on it and on extubation, and um, you know what we know is that extubation is often ignored as um, being a critical um, period during the perioperative period. What when in fact it's a very high risk period, and from our standpoint, um, has a more risk of patient complication than induction. But, um, you know, the challenge will be during, you know, extubation, you often require multiple people to be around and be completing tasks and communicating with each other. Um, and so maybe in that setting, a noise monitor might be useful as a gentle reminder. Um, but again, uh, I'm not sure that the monitor itself is, uh, is not going to be another source of distraction for people. Um, but, uh, you know, as a, a self-proclaimed noise expert, uh, whatever reduces the noise works for me. So if in fact it does reduce the noise, I'm in all support of it. Um, and I do think that, you know, noise during the actual surgical period is starting or has been studied. Um, and, um, and so maybe we need to look at um, noise during the entire surgical experience and not break it up to induction or extubation. We should probably take a look at it throughout the anesthesia and maintenance phase, which is where the surgical team does all our work. Yeah, those are really interesting. Uh... Uh, comments, you, you know, I think about noise monitors in the context maybe of countdown clocks that we use in the trauma bay, for example. And, you know, when a blunt injured patient comes in and you start that, that clock at 10 minutes and you say, we want to be in the scanner before it hits zero, that can really motivate the, the group and provide them with a goal. So, you know, perhaps noise monitors may have a future, may, maybe not. It's, it's hard to know. H having been around for quite a number of years now, uh, anecdotally, my observation has been as time goes on, the noise in the operating theaters has gotten more, uh, more intense and more, more of a problem. Um, and again, it, purely anecdotally, it, it seems to be that as generations go on, um, trainees in particular, whether that's medical students on the service or rotating through uh, junior residents, for example, seem to lose track a little bit of the operating environment and, and what's going on in terms of environmental awareness. And it's something I think that, uh, you know, I personally battle you know, sort of all the time, um, you know, at least in Calgary and other places where, where I've worked. It's interesting though, during the COVID era here where everyone is exiting the operating theater for intubation in particular and for extubation as well, that really seems to have improved dramatically. I'm curious if you've noticed that in Vancouver and what your thoughts are as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, um, there were comments um, from my colleagues and myself about that um, very obvious noise production on induction and extubation uh, for, you know, uh, for basically safety of the entire operating room team. And um, I think that really does 
highlight that the intervention of leaving the room um, has a profound effect on noise. And, you know, and I can say at our hospital, um, there's, you know, the vascular surgical group pre-intervention and post-intervention had a slight reduction, reduction noise, but in general, they were very quiet group for those two periods and um, of noise, uh, of induction and extubation. And I think, you know, in talking with the, the group, the, the practice for them, even before I did this study was to always leave the room. So they always leave the room uh, for, um, you know, invasive line placement and induction. And that, that is kind of the practice that they, um, they engage in, but also pass on to the trainees. So, you know, we, we don't have to ask them to please leave the room if they're being overly noisy because they uh, do their, um, we have our group discussion and then they automatically leave the room. So I do think that the number of people in the room does correlate with noise. And this was seen in, in our extubation um, data that uh, the, the noise increased significantly with the number of personnel in the room and specifically the number of trainees. Now, that's not to say that trainees are the source of noise um, specifically, but I do think that it's, again, the, the number of people in the room that greatly impacts the amount of noise that's experienced. You know, for, for those of us that work in multiple environments, uh, like yourself, like, like myself, and look after particularly critically ill patients, you know, across different places in the emergency department, maybe the trauma bay, uh, different uh, intensive care units in, in the operating theater, the ambient noise during intubation, during extubation, during a lot of these critical times couldn't be more different. And I'm curious if you can comment on the cultural sort of realities of those different spaces and how we can improve them in places like the operating room, for example. Yeah, so I mean, um, hopefully this paper, once it's published, will generate some discussion um, uh, for all those in the operating room. And, and certainly there is literature looking at um, the patient experience in the post-operative period, period and the ICU. And, and so, you know, hopefully this will allow for um, everybody who works in the hospital, all healthcare workers to start discussing noise and its impact, not only on potentially patients, depending on where you are, but also on us as healthcare workers. And I think, you know, the biggest um, take home point from this was the importance of clear communication. So I think that would be probably the, um, the, the thing that I would want to emphasize um, anywhere in the hospital in the setting of induction, excavation, or any critical event during the surgical period. And that simply looks like, um, can I ask for quiet on induction, please? Um, it's important for me to concentrate. Or uh, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the airway and I would like for uh, those not involved with induction to leave the room and I'll call you if I need you. So just having those verbal cues, a reminder of the, the critical you know, period that is going to um, be encountered and the importance of noise reduction. And I would say that, um, Certainly at St. Paul's Hospital, uh, there has been a general trend since this study to have um, those not involved with induction to leave. And it also empowered the anesthesiologist or the nursing staff or the surgical staff um, to remind those who are in the operating room who may not be familiar with that kind of shift um, in, in culture about leaving the room or, or 
or being paying conscious attention to noise reduction. And, and so I think that all comes down to conversations, communication and information and, and just gentle, gentle reminders, uh, the importance of, um, of potentially decreasing non-patient care related conversations. It probably is the best way, not only to um, provide a more quiet environment, but also to slowly work at that culture, slowly work at that noisy, noisy culture that we experience in the operating room. And, and then hopefully what will happen is that, you know, new um, personnel coming into the operating room will just start to know that it is the practice that it is quiet during induction extubation um, or during a critical time during the um, during the surgery which would be identified by the surgical team and that that I think is probably the best way to sustain that noise reduction um, rather than you know having um, a short reduction in noise uh, that is very transient because what we want is we you know we do want noise to be reduced um, consistently, not only for uh, to reduce the amount of distractions, but also because there are health implications for this noise. You know, there is noise-induced hearing loss that is uh, well documented um, and that and tends to develop early on in our career, so anesthesiologist's career, and that just happens to be studied. So you know, um, I think there's there's wide implications, and I think that change can be sustained. I think you've said that in such a lovely way and, and, you know, changing culture is not easy, but in this case, it's certainly worth the endeavor and the effort, I think for sure. I want to switch gears. Uh, you know, Amir, Amir and I really wanted to ask you in particular about your perceptions and how you frame music in the operating sorry, theater and not really in intubation and extubation periods, but just during the, the surgical workflow. I think we're probably a little bit biased. You know, there was a paper almost exactly 10 years ago that came out in the American uh, uh, Journal of College or uh, College of Surgeons uh, Journal, the JAX, that looked at this and a group of us in Calgary wrote uh, back as a letter to the editor, sort of disagreeing with it substantially, quoting, you know, a fairly reasonable body of literature that talks about surgeon comfort, surgeon performance, um, psychomotor links um, for people and, and surgeons in particular that, that did like music in an operating room. Certainly, I think we have to understand that you know, as we all know, some people and some surgeons, for example, uh, I'm sure many anesthesiologists don't like music and it doesn't, you know, hurt their performance per se. And there's always that back and forth. But I'm, I'm curious what you think about uh, music in, in particular uh, in an operating theater environment. Yeah, so I mean, music is interesting in, in, in that you identified that each person probably has a different threshold for its impact on, uh, on their, you know, their uh, skill. Um, you know, I think that music doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a bad thing. I do think that it's a important that everybody agrees on the type of music, because I can tell you right now, if you're going to be playing hard rock during a case, induction, maintenance, extubation, doesn't matter. That is uh, going to be extremely distracting. So everybody in the room needs to agree on the type of music. I think that um, music, uh, 
should be able to be turned down or turned off readily. So, um, you know, if there's a critical time, whether it's be from an anesthesiologist standpoint, nursing standpoint, or a surgical standpoint, that the noise can be turned off um, just to allow for um, uh, no distractions to occur during that particular time. And, you know, the, the last important aspect of music is that it should probably make sure that it's not too loud. So, for example, when noise goes above 80 decibels, uh, you need to speak loudly to be heard. So you can imagine that if it's too noisy, um, it's going to be difficult for you to raise your voice above that music to say, can you turn down the music or I'm having troubles or something's gone wrong. Um, but there are some key things that one has to consider when playing music in the operating room. So the first is that it's agreed upon by all those listening to it. So making sure that the type of music and the volume is um, you know, shared amongst those listening to it. So um, making sure that it's not going to be overly distracting for any one member because, for example, it's not enjoyed or it's triggering or anything along those lines. And the second thing is that the level should be adjusted to allow for a conversation still to occur and the ability to shut off the music if required. So, you know, you need to speak loudly to overcome noise over 80 decibels and you need to shout if it goes over 85. So making sure that the noise itself isn't actually, uh, you know, impeding your ability to uh, converse. And, you know, um, I agree that that music uh, sometimes is actually relaxing and conducive to work for, for those, um, you know, performing surgery or even for induction, for example. But the, what needs to be uh, recognized is that noise does have the potential. So specifically music, if it's a source of noise, has the potential to impact uh, communication, cognition, reaction time. And then this can subsequently um, potentially negatively impact patient safety. So with all those things in mind, I think, again, it comes down to communication. So we're going to find that some people are totally agreeable and actually find music conducive to working. And for some people, it's actually going to impair their ability to function and work effectively. And I think a conversation might look like, um, you know, this in the operating room. Uh, do you mind if I play some music? And the response sh should be, uh, sure. Uh, if you don't mind keeping it down and uh, why don't we uh, discuss what kind of music um, and maybe everybody agrees on country music and that's fine, but it should be discussed amongst everybody in the operating room. I think that's well said and, and well described. And I, I think probably that's that's typically how, how it goes, at least most of yours I've been in as well. Um, it, you know, it's interesting in, in Calgary, we have the National Music Center, which is one of the federally funded, uh, really big, beautiful, relatively new museums and, and experience centers. And, and in, in, that, uh, in that place, in, in one of the large rooms, there's a, a display and it's, it's quite interactive about noise and in particular music as related to noise in working environments. And there's a large um, um, uh, visual uh, picture of uh, one of the pediatric surgeons at, at Sick Children's. And she's talking about how important music is to her operating life and how she couldn't uh, imagine to go without it. And it's often interesting to sort of sit back and, and watch people read that and, and listen to what they what they chat about because I think the average person wouldn't necessarily think that that music gets played in an operating room. The, the last question I wanted to ask you um, 
was that when I worked in the U.S., there was an anesthesiologist that had done a, a bunch of research. And I don't really know how much he he published, uh, their group published or didn't at the end of the day, but he was a really big fan of asking a patient what type of music they liked uh, for their induction and, and their, their preparation to induction. And he, he showed a lot of data um, that was even at, at uh, a biochemical level, in addition to patient survey level, um, that patients really enjoyed that process of selecting music. They felt empowered and interactive and cared about. And it also seemed to, uh, to, to lower their overall stress. And I don't know if that's because of the psychological component of it or truly because of the music part of it. But do, do you have any thought or, or sense of that at all? Yeah, I, um, you know, I think there has been some studies that looked at uh, music from a patient experience. And I think, you know, with the perioperative lens on, um, we really, those involved with, you know, patients during the perioperative period, do not tend to ask exactly what the patient wants. And I think that, you know, that discussion that you had with your colleague is a perfect example that, you know, uh, we should be asking what patients um, would like to help uh, reduce um, any anxiety or stress or pain for induction, or even during the perioperative period. Um, and I absolutely think there is a way actually to um, ensure that that experience or the patient experience is satisfied while also decreasing um, the noise exposure for the healthcare professionals in the room. So um, something that we could consider doing is actually using headphones. So then really we're getting the best of both worlds and the patient gets to have um, their experience of uh, music, which potentially could distract them or calm them, um, maybe allow them to um, take off that kind of cognitive um, stress of undergoing, a, you know, entering a foreign environment and undergoing arguably probably one of the most stressful experiences of their life, but also making sure that uh, we as healthcare professionals in the operating room are still able to converse with one another and ensure patient safety. So I think it's an excellent point. And I think that probably we should be asking patients more and more what they would like and, and um, balance this with, you know, our um, patient safety and general kind of uh, workflow requirements um, and move forward with that. So I think it's a good point. I think music, like I said before, music doesn't have to be a negative thing. It just has to be the right type of music, not too loud and able to um, have some variation with it. So turn it down or turn it off as need be. Dr. McDonnell, you've given us so much food for thought today. It's been such an interesting and fascinating conversation. Thank you again for joining us. If there was one message that you had to give to our listeners about promoting better communication and conversation across the drapes, what would that message be after all the work that you've done, both in periop and uh, obviously with your research on noise levels? I think part of it is that all of us do this. We make assumptions or maybe don't know why we're doing certain things. And, and sometimes those there's conflict in that. So um, for example, as an anesthesiologist, I may elect to um, insert an invasive line for arterial monitoring, and that may uh, affect the efficiency of the room. But I think, you know, what it comes down to is, is, you know, getting curious about why a colleague is choosing a path or doing something a certain way, um, which then allows uh, for all, all of us to remind ourselves of the common goal of ensuring um, the patient undergoing a safe, 
um, and successful surgical uh, experience and, and specifically being able to return home to uh, their baseline kind of state. And I think, you know, by getting, you know, taking on that curiosity stance, it allows for us to communicate better professionally, but also maybe allows us to have those, um, you know, relation, relationship building conversations where we get to remind ourselves of, of all of us being human and having interesting and fascinating aspects of our life outside of the operating room. So I think that's probably um, the most important thing that I, that sometimes you forget in the, in the midst of all the stress of the operating room or even the stress of work, um, that, um, there's often things that everybody doesn't understand why, you know, you're doing a certain thing and, uh, it's, it's rarely intended to be negative for another person. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.